from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the CER podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a senior researcher in the CER's Berlin office and you're listening to the second episode of a five-part podcast series from our annual DigiD conference. And in this episode, we're going to discuss the relationship between Europe, China and the US. Now, the DigiD conference, which is where parts of this episode were recorded, Happens every autumn, usually. The CER brings together top economists and political thinkers to discuss the most important economic and political topics of the year. In 2020, the Digital Conference is taking place digitally. And what we're going to do is play you an edited version of the opening remarks that we heard from four panelists. And then in the second half of this podcast, I'm going to have a discussion with Sir John Soares, the former chief of MI6. But first, let's turn to the conference panel that took place last week. And we heard from four really excellent speakers who gave introductory remarks. We heard from Manuel Muniz Villa, who's the State Secretary for Global Spain at the Spanish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, from uh, Jean Pisani-Ferry, who's a professor at the EUI and at Sciences Po and Bruegel. We heard from Daniela Schwarzer, who's the Director of the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin, and from Nathalie Tocci, who's the Director of the Italian Institute for International Affairs in Rome. Manuel Moniz kicked us off and he focused on three trends which he argued would change geoeconomics and which should be informing Europe's foreign policy towards China. So the first is the centrality of knowledge clusters in the digital economy. Over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a strengthening of the geographic concentration of knowledge and of transfer and of entrepreneurship. Most of these successful clusters of transfer and of knowledge are now in the US and China, uh, definitely the largest and the most successful ones. Uh, I think it gives uh, a, the competition for talent and for transfer uh, a, a much more intense uh, dimension, right? So, so I think this worsens uh, the geopolitical competition in the digital economy. Manuel then looked at a second trend that he argued should shape the European approach to China. The second is, the concentration of productivity growth and the oligopolistic tendencies in digital markets. And there's a ton of work that has been done on this, but I, I find very revealing the work done by the OECD uh, since about, I think it's 2015 at least, that they've been looking at how very few companies have actually managed to reap the benefits of, 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 of emerging technologies when it comes to productivity. So if you look at the aggregate number, it looks as if productivity growth has stalled in most places. Uh, but if you actually disaggregate this figure and look at specific companies, you find out that uh, a very reduced number of firms, the, the OECD refers to them as frontier companies, have concentrated almost the totality of productivity growth over the last uh, 20, 30 years. Now, this is relevant because most of the large companies that are competing for dominance in these markets are now either American or uh, Chinese. I think in Europe, we should be very aware uh, that if we give full access to our markets and there's not, we don't have a level playing field in these markets, 
uh, we're going to be playing straight into these dynamics that are contrary to the interests of, of smaller sized uh, European tech companies. Finally, he drew attention to the world of startups and entrepreneurship, again, clearly laying out how this was a world dominated by China and the US. So out of the most successful 100 startups in the AI space, only four were European. So, you know, 90 odd were non-European, mostly American and Chinese. Manuel also asked participants to pay attention to the political or systemic dimension of the relationship between Europe, the US and China. And he noted that systemic rivalry considerations were really shaping the way the US was looking at China, but that Europe too was growing more aware of this dimension of China as a systemic rival. And here I want to mention two things. One is the capacity of emerging technologies for surveillance and and for impinging on people's privacy. And this, I think, should be a concern for Europeans, how these technologies are used to surveil, uh, monitor, and to repress uh, dissent and minorities. And this is, I think, an issue that should be incorporated into how we design our, our foreign policy in broad terms. The second dimension Manuel asked participants to consider was this combination of big data of AI with neuroscience and behavioral sciences, which he argued made the capacity to survey, to concentrate and process information and in the front to much more than privacy. Here's Manuel. You know, whether this data is uh, are owned by corporations and, and this moves us into a world of what has been called surveillance capitalism, where people will be nudged or can be nudged to behave in certain ways, particularly regarding how they consume and live, or whether this, these data are, are owned and used by states. So we're in a world of surveillance states and states can can nudge and, and manipulate how people behave. You know, in, in any of these scenarios, uh, these are clearly now assaults on people's freedom and agency. So the way we regulate data, and I, I'm not sure that this is fully understood when we speak about the privacy regulation in Europe or how we should uh, engage with some of these countries around the world, the way we regulate privacy and data and data ownership and who has a say over how data is used is very much the cornerstone of a much larger edifice uh, that has people's agency and freedoms right at the core. Our second speaker, uh, Jean Pisani-Ferry, also distinguished between the economic and the structural questions of how the EU should respond to China. And with regard to the economics question, he gave a succinct analysis. We know the problem, we know, we know the solution. I mean, we know our weaknesses in terms of the response to the, the COVID crisis. We also know our more structural weaknesses. Um, we know that China invests more in education than what we do. We know that China invests more in uh, uh, R&D. Uh, we know, and Manuel was right to say that we don't have enough frontier companies. We know that China also has weaknesses. We know that uh, demography, efficiency, financial fragility are among Chinese weaknesses. So, so you know, the, here the answer is very simple. The, the answer is work on our own problems um, and uh, accept, obviously, the, the rise of China, accept the development of China. China is going to continue to grow. Its share in the global economy is going to continue to grow. And that's good for, for, for them and that's good for us. Uh, but let's address our own, own problem and focus on that. On the question of systemic competition, Jean Pisani-Ferry argued that there were many potential areas of cooperation between the US and the EU in facing China. We have many common grievances. Uh, everything we say about uh, uh, the Chinese um, implementation of the uh, WTO provisions in the spirit of them, if not uh, just a letter, about intellectual property, about subsidies, um, 
about investment behavior. Um, that's uh, something we have in common with the with the U.S. and we we can actually you know. I mean, we have found even with the Trump administration common ground on that. But he also saw a potential risk and he put forward two interesting thought experiments. The risk is that we align uh, too much with the US. Now, we, I think, should be clear about what we have in common and what are the differences we have with the, the US. Now, I think we do have a very different strategic outlook. And my thought experiment would be, um, imagine a perfectly democratic and a perfectly market-oriented China. Would it be a problem for the US? My answer is yes, it would still be a problem with the US because China and the US are in competition for global leadership or global dominance, if you wish. We are not in this game. We're not in this game anymore. We gave up long ago. So our problem is not the rivalry with, the, with, the, with China. On the contrary, the other sort of experiment, imagine a perfectly you know, transactional China, perhaps it would be more comfortable with the US, it would not be comfortable with us because we are, uh, you know, we, we, we think that our view is a world of rules, it's a world of principles, and a perfectly transactional power is not something we are comfortable with. Now, we do have a number of issues uh, with China, which are perhaps more specific. One is clearly the interference of geopolitics and, um, and economic relations. And that's actually not specific to China. Um, we do have the same type of problem uh, with the U.S., uh, with, uh, you know, the uh, U.S. Um, use of uh, unilateral sanctions, uh, uh, the, uh, the use of uh, instruments uh, arising from the centrality of the U.S. economic system in enforcing U.S. Uh, uh, geopolitical preferences. That's something we are confronted to. And I think we have to recognize that the interference between economics and geopolitics is stronger than what it was in the, in the world uh, uh, of yesterday. And we have to get much more prepared for uh, you know, responding with our own priorities. And I think that's a conversation that has started in the, uh, in the EU. Next up was Daniela Schwarzer, who began by taking a look back at the year 2020 and what happened in China-EU relations. I think what, what 2020 was supposed to be, at least partially also from the German-EU presidency perspective, was meant to be uh, the year to make progress on EU-China relations. First big task was really seen as Uh, the job to align the EU27 on the China issue. And that was why the German EU presidency put forward the idea of having an all EU27 heads of state and government summit with the Chinese leadership in September in Leipzig. This then did not happen, obviously, because of COVID. But I think um, one of the realizations was also in the run-up when the preparations were still uh, being undertaken, although under digital conditions, um, how hard it was, first of all, to make sure that the EU27 uh, agree on the positions that the EU would take during that summit, but then also to produce something of a productive agenda uh, with the Chinese. She also argued that 2020 had served as a reminder of the deep interdependencies between the EU and China, as well as the strategic investments by China in critical infrastructure which became de facto a danger uh, and which had motivated member states to broaden the scope of industries included in investment screening provisions. If you look at the discussions on critical industries, which very rapidly spread into the area of medical provisions, um, 
pharmaceutical companies, um, now all the transparency on where we have crucial dependencies on basic uh, drugs um, that we can't produce ourselves anymore. It's not only about treating COVID, but it's really about um, a, a rethink of uh, EU dependency on imports from China. She also drew attention to a third development that had taken place in 2020 related to the domestic dimension of the systemic rivalry between the EU and China. There is a growing uh, sense of alertness, not only of informal Chinese networks, informal in or, or sort of hidden influencing um, influence on civil society and the media and social media, etc., etc., but also a more aggressive um, Chinese state presence. So Chinese diplomacy, and I'm not only speaking for Berlin here, but experiences I've shared with other think tankers around Europe, is, is really um, taking a very different and aggressive stance on, uh, you know, when think tankers or others talk and write about China, but also on, of course, Taiwan and other issues where, where China is involved. Moving on to the transatlantic relationship, here's Daniela on the best way for the EU to approach the relationship with the US with regards to China. And I think uh, our job here is as Europeans to outline why we have a different judgment of our costs and benefits of decoupling, for instance, and how we think uh, we need to hedge our risks, but also where we want to maintain a productive relationship, at least in some regards with China. Finally, Natalie Tocci asked an important question. Is the EU better placed now than it was a couple of years ago to actually address both the political, the economic and the systemic challenges that China poses? Her answer, the picture is mixed. Here's Natalie. You know, this is a story of a glass half full and a glass half empty. Uh, and, and the glass half full is actually uh, perhaps paradoxically when it comes to sort of uh, talking uh, about the European Union internal rather than external. So internally, yes, obviously, and, and Daniela is absolutely right, there are still plenty of differences and divisions between member states. But I think, Charles, as you were hinting at at, at the outset, I think the direction of travel is actually towards greater convergence. Uh, and I think we have been seeing this uh, implicitly and explicitly over, over the last year. She gave two telling examples that hint at the fact that Europe might not be quite as vulnerable to Chinese investment and influence attempts as many had feared, starting with the 17 plus one format. So yes, we still have a 17 plus one, but I think it's interesting to note that amongst the 17, uh, some, namely particularly I would say the Baltic countries, uh, Czech Republic and, and Slovakia, uh, are increasingly aware Uh, of the fact that this has not exactly paid off. Uh, I was recently having a, a chat with a, an Estonian friend who was telling me that uh, over the course of the last couple of years, not only have, uh, has Estonian trade towards China not uh, accelerated, it has not even increased. In fact, it's decreased. Uh, and, and, and this, you know, and, and once one gets to a sort of critical mass of disappointment uh, with, with the gains from a sort of divide and rule uh, Chinese approach to, to the European Union, it becomes far easier for, for countries to eventually uh, drop, drop out. Uh, coming, for instance, to another example, I mean, the sort of uh, much um, debated memorandum of understanding between Italy and China. Uh, again, a lot of talk about this, but when one actually starts looking at the content and what has actually 
happened over the course of the last year? Well, the truth is not a great deal has actually happened. Uh, one of the topics that was hotly debated was the whole question of the port of Trieste. Uh, well, there is not much China in the port of Trieste there these days. There is actually quite a lot of Germany. So, I mean, you know, be it for, for good and ill, when, once one gets into sort of mired into the meanders of public procurement, especially in Italy's case, um, uh, it, it sort of, you know, um, a, a big uptick in, in Chinese investment is, is easier said than, than done. But there also was another side to this coin. The glass half empty part of the story is really more on the international than on the uh, internal. Uh, it is clear that over the last year we have seen a crystallization of the US-China confrontation to the extent that now we know that this is not only a set of sectoral conflicts and disputes, be it over trade, be it over digital, we now know that this has a broader political and ideological sort of overlay uh, to it. Uh, and that, in a sense, only promises to become more explicit uh, under a Biden administration that is obviously going to take far more seriously uh, issues uh, in, in the sort of box of uh, human rights, rule of law, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South China Sea, etc. Um, which basically means that it becomes more, uh, it, it becomes increasingly clear that what that the international system as it's developing uh, acquires, of course, a very different, but in, in some respects, it, a new bipolar uh, sort of uh, configuration uh, in which there is a fundamental sort of divide, uh, although interdependencies are going to be far greater than the previous bipolar system, but a fundamental divide between uh, 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 authoritarian states and, and liberal democracies. At the end, she gave this sum up of the challenge Europe was facing. So I think sort of trace, sort of walk that very fine line that I think Jean was, uh, was referring to of figuring out what our own uh, equilibrium will be as Europeans, uh, knowing full well that this will not be an equidistance between the United States uh, and China, uh, largely because uh, if things continue as they are, As I said, it will essentially be a story about how we as liberal democracies uh, will be navigating a non-liberal world in which uh, liberal and illiberal powers uh, will both, in a sense, coexist, uh, compete and possibly even conflict. Right. Now, this sets us up perfectly, I think, for the second part of this podcast. I'm delighted to be joined now by Sir John Soares. Sir John is a former British diplomat. He was the chief of the MI6 between 2009 and 2014, and he's now a senior advisor at Chatham House and executive chairman at New Bridge Advisory. He was also a participant in our debate last week, and he's now here to discuss some of the themes that came up. Welcome. Thank you, Sophia. So in our debate, uh, as we heard, quite a few of the panelists painted this picture of a G2 world dominated by China and the US with Europe left on the outside. They were looking particularly at the technology space, at the digital sphere, uh, the entrepreneurship and startup dimension, but also at the ability to set norms, project power globally. Would you agree with that description? Well, I think The United States and China certainly have an edge on Europe when it comes to those sectors you're talking about. They are both uh, military powers. They are both technology powers. They've both made a lot more progress in the digital sphere than we have here in Europe. A, a G2 world in terms of power projection 
is probably an accurate description. I think there are areas where Europe is an equal of the United States and China, it's sheer size of our economy, our, our trading position in the world. And I think our economic heft is uh, substantial. We don't always project it in quite the same way uh, because of our emphasis on open markets and free trade. It means that uh, Europe can be uh, more vulnerable to strategic plays by China and the United States, buying up our technology companies, for example. And Europe's getting more alive to that. I think the one area where Europe certainly holds its weight and in some ways is more advanced than the United States and China is in the area of regulation. (laughs) It sounds a bit Uh, bureaucratic to say that Europe is a a regulatory superpower. But I think we've demonstrated that the capacity of the EU in particular to set standards, to find the balance between, for example, data security and data privacy, to find an approach which should work on taxing global companies in the digital space. I think these are all areas where Europe has to, to be taken fully into account. But when it comes to development of new technology, building up global technology companies and projecting power in the world, for better or worse, we are in a G2 world. Great. I think that was a really nuanced picture that you do there. And I think it uh, perfectly leads us into this next question, um, which is on the security geopolitics dimension. So we heard repeatedly last week that America had been faster than the EU to acknowledge the geopolitical dimension of the relationship with a rising China, that Europeans had instead preferred to look at China in purely mercantilist terms, if you will. But most of the panelists also seem to think that the EU was catching up. And you also just uh, mentioned that you thought the EU was upping its game. Um, Some thought that that change was best symbolized by this paper from the EU Commission that was uh, published in March 2019, I believe, where Brussels introduced this concept of China as a systemic rival. Um, Do you think that Europeans and the EU perhaps even have broadened their perspective on China at this point to include not just economic ties, regulatory um, ties, but also a broader security dimension? Yes, I think both points in your question are true. We were slow to wake up to the geopolitical challenge of uh, China, and we are now uh, making amends for that. And I'm not a fan of President Trump, and I'm glad that we're going to have a Biden administration take office in January. But I do think one positive legacy of the Trump administration is that he has made us all much more aware of the strategic challenge that China poses, uh, that we can't just treat China as a market. We can't just deal with them as if they were uh, a Western power like Japan or or how Europe and the United States treat one another, because they have a very strategic objective. Um, Not only that, but China has changed a lot over the last uh, six or seven years since uh, Xi Jinping became the undisputed leader. It's become more autocratic, more centralized, there's less scope for debate and criticism inside China, and it's become much more assertive on the world stage, as we're seeing in the South China Sea, as we're seeing with the uh, aggressive use of of the Belt and Road diplomacy, uh, as we saw very vividly in the COVID pandemic, where it used its control of of supply chains in in health equipment and and health material to manipulate other countries and to uh, seek political advantage from its position. So I think all these things have led to some of the scales falling from European eyes about the true nature 
uh, of China. Uh, and I do think also that with the Biden administration, there'll be much more scope for a common approach amongst Americans and Europeans and, and Japan and Korea and Australia uh, towards dealing with China uh, uh, on, on the world stage. How much do you think this realization was shared across all of Europe and how much is this led by uh, countries like France uh, or the UK that traditionally have a more global outlook in their in their foreign policy? Well, I, I think um, uh, Germany was certainly the, the example you probably had in mind when you mentioned uh, a mercantilist approach Quite, uh, yeah. towards China. I mean, it's very striking uh, of, uh, of the enormous output of uh, Volkswagen. Uh, 50% of their cars and, and trucks are sold in, in China. That's an enormous dependence upon, uh, upon one market. And Germany, with its uh, record of, of superb manufacturing industry, um, has been the most successful of European countries in making inroads into China's market. But I think even in Germany, there is much more awareness now of the dangers to Europe of being overly dependent upon Chinese technology, Chinese supply chains, and the Chinese market in general. I think we're aware of how China uses technology for repressive surveillance, as Manuel Munir said in the, in, in the discussion. I think we're much more alive to Chinese companies buying up European companies, uh, and uh, I welcome the much higher levels of scrutiny that that is now uh, achieving. And I think uh, it's it's a, a sort of French concept that we should have a European industrial policy. But I think the the idea that you can't just let free markets uh, solve these problems. It came through in our earlier discussion. And I think it's right that we acknowledge that in a world uh, where the global economy and global trade is being politicized by the rivalry between the United States and China, we do have to have a, a more assertive industrial policy which builds European capability, uh, uh, not just in the EU, but a, a, across Europe generally. And uh, we're able to protect our, our continent's interests uh, and not just think that that uh, rather naively that the whole world will respond to the sort of free market rules by which we operate. You uh, mentioned a greater awareness of the European vulnerabilities vis-a-vis -vis China. And I think that Daniela Schwarzer in our discussion also talked about the effect that the pandemic had on this greater European awareness, um, a greater awareness of how vulnerable our critical infrastructure, but also our supply chains uh, are vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. But then Natalie Tocci also made this interesting point that some of the ways that China was exerting influence in Europe, like the 17 plus one format, for example, or China buying up ports uh, in Italy and Greece and other places weren't actually as effective at, as many Europeans had, had feared earlier. What did you think of that point? Well, I, I thought Natalie was onto a good point. I think the Chinese can often promise more than they deliver. And part of their purpose with the 17 plus one was to break up the European Union uh, into entities that they could manage and manipulate uh, more effectively. And I think uh, countries like the Baltic States and Italy uh, have woken up to the difficulties there. Um, uh, so we shouldn't be naive about uh, uh, Chinese moves to flatter, to offer uh, commercial breaks. But they, we also have to be very clear that this is set in a framework of what maximizes China's interests. And that's very different from what promotes Europe's interests. Finally, last week during the panel, we heard quite a bit of discussion on this notion that Europe and the US, while they are of close allies, do not necessarily share the same strategic interests with regards to China. And the argument that was made here was that the US was threatened by China's rise in its hegemonic position, whereas the EU was more threatened by China undermining 
the multilateral world order, if you can still call it that. Um, what is your view on this question of alignment uh, between the US and Europe vis-a-vis -vis China? Well, I, I was surprised at some of the remarks that were made during the debate that seemed to think that somehow the Europe could be equidistant between the United States and China, that somehow because those two um, great powers were in a rivalry for global uh, superiority, that we could just sit on one side and play one off against the other. I, I think that is mistaken. Uh, and I think it's important that we stand up for uh, our values. We're seeing extraordinary actions in China in terms of uh, suppressing the, an, an entire uh, community in, in, uh, uh, among the Uyghurs. We're seeing the reneging on the one country, two systems in Hong Kong. And we're seeing threats to the uh, self-government of Taiwan. Uh, so it's clear that China is moving in a political direction, which is simply not in line with European values. Uh, and I think in some ways that's what the European Commission paper you referred to earlier, where it described China as a systemic rival. It's an important concept that we need to hang on to. The United States is not a systemic rival to the European Union. We may have our differences. We compete furiously uh, with the United States in many areas, but our systems are compatible and broadly aligned. And if when we, we look ahead to dealing with China, I think we have to recognize that Yes, there will be areas where we can cooperate with China, for example, possibly on the pandemic, certainly on climate change. There'll be areas of intense competition uh, with China and, and technology and trade and business is certainly going to be in that uh, sector. But there will be areas where we have to resist China. We have to stand up to China. Uh, and I think it's, um, it's encroachments on, on human rights, on its uh, international treaty obligations and pushing back where China is basically trying to co-opt and, uh, uh, and subvert the independence of other countries. I think these are areas where uh, Europe and the United States has a common approach. Um, we, we stand with With the United States on values, we would compete with the United States on on the economy, but we don't stand with China on its values. To this question of how exactly China poses a threat to Europe, then, if you argue that uh, the U.S. and Europe share the situation that they're in vis-a-vis -vis a rising China. Well, well, I think this is a there's a fundamental uh, point in here which Henry Kissinger brought to mind uh, in conversations recently. China is essentially a land power. Its focus is on the Eurasia landmass. Its strategic goal is to be the dominant power on Eurasia and to reduce the United States to a major power, but one which is on an island separated by two oceans. Now, if that sort of Kissingerian big picture thought is the one which accurately reflects Chinese thinking, and there's no better person to interpret Chinese thinking than Dr. Kissinger, I think it's an important warning for us in Europe. We are actually on the Eurasian landmass. We share that with China, and we don't want to be dominated by China on our continent. And uh, I think that is a threat we need to keep in mind, that it's not real now when the Chinese economy is the same size as Europe's, but if it became twice the size or four times the size, how would we in Europe be able to uh, respond and deal with uh, a challenge when the Chinese want us to do something? We, in some ways, we've found it difficult to be under American hegemony on defense matters, but if we come under Chinese hegemony on the Eurasian landmass, that poses a much bigger strategic challenge to Europe. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Sophia. 
Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.